Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Uh, we are transitioning now. Chapter 6 and 7 transition us in Acts. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in, in a couple of minutes. Um, but we have now, I told you last week, it's, it's cycles, it's waves of, of problems and persecution and issues, but also waves of success and, and, and evangelistic fervor and people coming to know the Lord. That's what we see in Acts. And this morning, we have another issue, danger from within. Uh, we saw a little of that uh, when Ananias and Sapphira had their issue, but that was taken care of quite suddenly. Uh, now we have something else, uh, less a... Uh, uh, an individual problem, and now it becomes a group problem. Um, in my preparation, and uh, next week I'm going to start putting in the bulletin the, uh, the, the commentaries that I use when I'm preparing for the week, uh, just so that y'all can, it'll just be down at the bottom who it is and that kind of thing. I don't know, some of y'all might say, I want to go look at that, and that's fine, and uh, I have no problem with that, let you know where I'm getting some of my information and uh, where I'm studying uh, every week to prepare. Uh, one of the things that was talked about in one of the commentaries was a uh, was church fights and splits. Now, I know not an issue here, um, but in some churches, those happen, and they can occur over the most ridiculous things. Uh, Tom Rayner, who's the president of Life, uh, Lifeway, did an informal Twitter survey back in 2015, and uh, he just asked people, uh, what are the, uh, the things that you personally experienced a church fight over, argue over, and possibly even split over? Um, these are in no particular order. So it's not, you know, the worst or the best or anything like that. So uh, number one, <laughs> argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. <laughs> Doesn't say pastor's beard, it says worship pastor. So number two, fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. Number three, a deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. Uh, number four, a church dispute of whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, number five, a church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. They're pointless anyway, right? Number six, a 45-minute heated argument over the type of filing cabinet to purchase, black or brown, two, three, or four drawers. Number seven, a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. Since he didn't pose for any, you know, it really doesn't matter, I guess. Uh, number eight, a petition to have all church staff clean-shaven. That's the one that affects me right there. Um, number nine, a dispute over whether the worship leader should have his shoes on during the service. 
Number 10, a big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off 10 cents. Someone finally gave a dime to settle the issue. (laughs) Number 11, a dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of grape juice. Number 12, business meeting arguments about whether the church should purchase a weed eater or not. It took two business meetings to resolve. Number 13, arguments over what type of green beans the church should serve. Number 14, two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved to a stronger blend. Members left the church in the latter example. Number 15, major conflict when the youth borrowed a crockpot that had not been used for years. Jordan, you big on crockpot cooking? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Number 16, an argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. Because they're deviled. Tom Rayner put a comment, only if it's balanced with angel food cake for dessert. That's fair. Number 17, an argument over who has the authority to buy postage stamps for the church. Number 18, a disagreement over using the term potluck instead of pot blessing. You really don't want to believe some of these, do you? But yet we all know deep down inside, oh totally, I can see that happening. Number 19, a church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server. It looked too much like liquor. It's the skinny, you know what I'm talking about, the skinny bottle, and it was clear, so it, that was actually Beth Moore, uh, is what this says, uh, that, that brought the, the bottle, and she was told it looked too much like liquor. Uh, number 20, an argument in church over who has access to the copy machine. Number 21, some church members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. It resulted in a major fight and split. Number 22, an argument over whether to have gluten-free communion bread or not. Number 23, a dispute over whether the church should allow people to wear black t-shirts since black is the color of the devil. Number 24, a fight over whether or not to sing happy birthday each week. And number 25, an argument over whether the fake dusty plants should be removed from the podium. We don't want to believe this, y'all, but uh, uh, I, I think... I think we can. As a matter of fact, one of the commentaries I, I read this week had another one that I, I, I looked for the source because this guy said it was in the Dallas paper uh, that it was reported, and this was some years ago, that a church had uh, split and they were fighting over who would get the property, so they w- eventually went to the court system, went through their denomination to the court system. The court said, uh, y'all handle this, kicked it back to the denomination, and the denomination decided. But when they began to research the issue, figure, get what caused such, it had to be theology or, or, or immorality. It was something, right? They traced it back to the fact that an elder in the church got a smaller piece of ham in the serving line than the child next to him. They literally traced the root of the issues back to that. Ham caused a church split. The reality is that arguments and factions in the church 
are a satanic attack. That's all they are. They are Satan coming into the church and trying to divide it and rip it apart from within. And, and as we look at this passage this morning, while the reason here may or may not have been, depending on who you read, more serious than ham or what kind of coffee uh, to serve, uh, First Church tangled with these very issues. They had these problems. They tangled with the danger from within. Read with me Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It says, In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the, excuse me, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal seemed, uh, uh, this proposal pleased the whole company. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the disciples who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. So as I said, this begins the transition from uh, Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, chapter 6 and 7 begin the transition from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Uh, they're branching out, and, and they're not going to do it necessarily by choice. We're going to see that here in the next two chapters, but it's, that's what we're going uh, toward. And it's going to be the Hellenists. It's going to be the Hellenistic Jews. Uh, the Hellenistic Jew was a Greek-speaking Jew. Uh, primarily, they believe that these would have been older folks, again, primarily, that had been living in Egypt and uh, 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 Assyria. It wasn't Assyria back at this point, but had li been living in surrounding countries. But as they got older, they wanted to die in Jerusalem. So they would come home. They didn't speak Aramaic, which is what everybody else spoke in Jerusalem at this time. They didn't speak that. They spoke Greek. So they were, and, and they, had, they had their own synagogue, a Greek-speaking synagogue versus a Hebrew-speaking synagogue. And, of course, they probably had their own culture and ways of doing things, too. So there wasn't a real split between them once they got into the church, once Pentecost happened and all these people started joining. But there, was still, there were still differences. It's going to be these Hellenists that will be the leaders in Gentile evangelization. It's going to come from Antioch, which is outside of uh, Israel. It's going to be uh, from there that we begin to see global evangel evangelization. And the gospel we're going to see is going to break down racial, national, and religious barriers. The other thing that happens in this passage is that we're introduced to Stephen and Philip. Uh, Stephen is going to play an immediate role. Philip's role is going to be soon uh, to follow Stephen's. But they're going to play key roles in the move of evangelism out of Jerusalem. So Luke is an incredible author. That's all I'm telling you here. He's introducing these two. He's getting us prepared for the, 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 the role that, Luke, that Stephen um, 
Philip and the other Hellenistic Jews are going to play, and this is how he introduces them. So we start in verse 1, and verse 1 tells us that the, uh, in those days, as the disciples were, multi- were increasing in number or multiplying, uh, don't be confused, here in this passage, the word disciple does not mean the twelve. As you can see further down in the passage, Luke references the twelve separate from the disciples. So he is using now, Luke is, using the term disciples to refer to believers. So the believers, the number of believers were increasing. These church members were, were increasing. The church is continuing to grow. And based on some time stamps that we see in the passage, this could be as long as five years after Pentecost. So we've jumped between chapter 5 and chapter 6, maybe four and a half years or so, possibly. Regardless, we see that if it's been just a few months or a few years, the church is continuing to grow. The church is healthy. God is continuing to do things in the church. At least it appears healthy. And then we read this little phrase, There arose a complaint. Literally, that word complaint means murmur. Uh, And I think murmur works better. Complaint has the idea of when you go to a restaurant uh, and, and, and the food's cold and the service is bad, you call the manager over and say, look, this was just, this was a rough outing for us. Uh, the food was cold, the service was bad, it just things aren't going well in your restaurant. That, that would be the idea of a complaint. That's not what was happening here. This was murmuring. Based on the context, look at what did not happen. There was no direct appeal to leadership. Nowhere in here does it say when something went wrong, they went to the apostles and said, look, here's an issue that that I feel like is an issue that I think we need to at least discuss, I need to let you know about, I want to talk to you about. That didn't happen. There, There was no direct conversation. They were murmuring. Murmuring. The, whole, the word sounds like what you're doing. Onomatopoeia, if you don't know what that word means. On a, uh, based on the context, there's no attempt at understanding. We don't see that the, the people are thinking, now, I know this has happened, but surely I, there's just no way this was intentional. There's no way those, those apostles aren't are out to get me. It, it, there's, I'm sure there's a reasonable explanation for what's going on. They're not out to get me. The world certainly doesn't so revolve around me that I think everything that happens is all about me. There was no, none of that was going on. No, no attempt at understanding. There was no grace given. True mistake was made. We're going to see here in, in a couple of minutes. A true mistake was made, but there was no grace to, well, it, it's understandable. I mean, they're busy. They're, the church is growing. There's a lot to do, and we've done things a certain way, and now it's just it, it, it's not possible to do it that way anymore. Certainly, uh, We're going to give them a little grace on that. None of that based on the context. What we do see happening is murmuring. Now, what does murmuring mean? Well, it's gossip and sniping. 
oh, those apostles, they just don't like me. I don't like the way the apostles are doing this. They should know that we're not getting what we want. They should know this is going on. You know, it's because, it's because of their beards, right? It's because uh, their shirt tail's untucked. It's because of, of other things. Uh, another way to define this word murmuring or complaint is expression of speculation or skepticism about someone. Lest you think I'm adding to Scripture when I say that they were talking about the apostles. No, the people who were murmuring and complaining were saying certain things about the, the leadership expressing this skepticism and speculation in a negative manner to anybody who would listen, of course, except the apostles. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't fit. Or another definition, a secret displeasure not openly avowed. Again, lest you think I'm adding to Scripture, this was gossiping. This was behind the doors talking about people because, well, I'm not getting what I think I deserve or what I like. That's what was going on. See, we read a couple of different times that Satan could not make a dent in the church from the outside. So he went where he knew he could make the biggest issue, inside. Every time. And, and this morning, if, y'all, if your Sunday school class was on Nehemiah, what was it, J.R. 5? 1 through 13. I got there a little late this morning because I was talking to folks. I sat down, and, and, and I accused JR of stealing my sermon outline because it could not have followed any better. Y'all, if you do not believe God has a message for you this morning about murmuring and complaining and the danger from within to a church, to a community of believers, Look no further than the fact that Sunday school and the sermon lined up Old Testament, New Testament. I had no clue what the Sunday school lesson was about this morning. J.R. Lifeway had no clue what I was preaching on this morning, and yet they line up almost perfectly. God has a word for us today. God has a word for us every day. But when you see things like this, you cannot deny it. Satan will come inside to split the church. He knows that we are prepared. He knows we are expecting and, 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 and aware of what can happen from the outside. We see it coming from the outside. It's a stab in the back from the inside. And it will destroy a church. The sad reality is those who do it They weren't concerned enough about what it might do to the church to stop. They were going to do it anyway, complaining and murmuring. But but we look at the passage. I mean, let's, let's give them a break, right? Look at the passage. These Hellenistic Jews, verse 1 continues, uh, were the ones that were complaining against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. It looks like, and it is, a legitimate concern. The concern is not the issue here. It's how the concern was handled. There are two possible reasons for this problem, for for the reason Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked. Two possible reasons. One was ethnic prejudice. 
as I talked about, the Hellenistic Jews were culturally different from uh, Hebraic Jews. They weren't usually racially different. They were all Jews, but their culture was different. They spoke Greek. They, they acted Greek. Uh, one of the big places Jews came from back to Israel was Alexandria, Egypt. Nearly a third of the population of Alexandria, Egypt was Jewish. Uh, they, they would come back and, and they just wouldn't, y'all do things wrong, they, they would tell them. And, and they were seen uh, that uh, up there it should say Hellenistic Jews weren't seen favorably by Hebraic Jews, especially the Pharisees, the ones who are kind of in charge of the, the synagogues now. They especially were looked poorly on. The, the ones who were in power. These new folks were coming in, and uh, they're, not, they're not the right kind of people. Or the other issue, the, or the other rather reason, was just managerial oversight. The church has grown in this however many months or years rapidly, and it had led to some unforeseen problems in, in administering what they had always done. Remember, we talked about how things were being sold, property was being sold, money was being brought to the apostles and laid at their feet to do this very thing. So there wasn't a, a, an ill intent behind what was going on, so it appears. It was just that it had grown so much beyond the uh, apostles' ability to, to lead it that some folks were falling through the cracks. Remember what I said earlier. One of the problems, what didn't happen, was that there was no grace given to what was going on in the immediate uh, uh, vicinity of, I'm not getting what I think I deserve or need. Regardless of the reason, though, like I said, I believe it was managerial oversight, it, it seems to lead to that, especially this, the apostles' response leads us to believe that. Regardless of the reason, though, the murmuring was the threat to the unity of the church. That's what the, the apostles were primarily responding to. There was an issue that needed to be fixed. There will always be issues in a church that need to be fixed. There will always be growing pains. There will be uh, dying pains. There, there will be issues that have to be handled along the way, no doubt, and the apostles knew that. The problem, what was going to split the church, was not the issue, but the response by some people to the issue. That's what was hurting. Satan took what should have been a quickly resolved mistake and attempted to use it to destroy the church. And far Far too often, he wins. He wins at destroying the churches. How many churches have split over ham, or carpet color, or bathrooms, or flowers, or dress, or music? Far, far too many. So the apostles had a decision to make. They, uh, as we learned about Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah, it says that uh, Nehemiah uh, thought, what, what did it say, J.R., help me out, when, when confronted with the problem, he thought, he was, he was extremely angry, and then he, oh, I put you on the spot, J.R., he, he, he thought, I can't remember what the, thought, Seriously considered, there we go, 
seriously considered. He was extremely angry. We don't see anger, anger from the apostles here, uh, but uh, at least, I don't know, maybe. That, that, that first answer is kind of uh, snippy. Um, but they seriously considered the problem and how to handle the issue. We see it in verses 2 through 4. That they summoned the whole company of the disciples and said it would not be right for us to give, us, uh, to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from, you, uh, from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. See, leadership responded weren't, once they were aware of the issue. So many times there are things going on in the church that leadership has no clue about. I hear about things sometimes weeks after they happened. Text would have been nice and I'd have known. Maybe a phone call if you don't text. But once leadership knew, once the apostles knew, they responded to the issue. And, 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 and they had a responsibility to respond to the issue in verses 2 through 4. But the apostles, the pastors of the church, also knew they had a priority of responsibility, and that was their preaching. They had one major purpose in the church. They had other responsibilities, but their one major responsibility was preaching. And let me tell you right now, I don't like preaching these kinds of verses. This is why preachers do topical sermons and they jump around the Bible. You get to avoid rough spots and, and, and spots you don't want to preach. But anytime I have to stand up here and tell you what the Bible says about the responsibility of pastors, I don't like it. Because all it ever sounds like to those who are so inclined is, well, he's just trying to get out of responsibility. No, I'm trying to be biblical. That's what's most important. And we see that the apostles said, our responsibility, the, the most important thing, and, and the phrase is, it would not be right for us to give up preaching. That, that It's not a right or wrong issue, it's a calling issue. Uh, might be better translated, it would not be according to God's calling for us to give up preaching in order to uh, wait on tables. We've made this be a, a, a serving food issue, and it might have been, it also might have been giving out uh, financial help. This idea of serving tables just meant sitting at the table and the distribution of what's needed. So it, it could have been food, it could have been money. Uh, it, they didn't wait tables the way we envision it today. So they said, we have a particular responsibility we have a particular uh, priority in what we are called to do. Therefore, raise up people among you. The church should select those with the responsibility of service. Y'all get together and you talk about who would be the best among you to serve the people in this manner, to, to fulfill this function that's needed in the church. And so... They, we find out later, they did it. Now, let's, little caveat here, these are probably not the first deacons. I know we've heard it said that way, and they, they are serving, but the title of deacon is not used here. There's a verb that's used to serve uh, that uses that word deacon, or the Greek word we get deacon from, but it's also 
uh, used of the apostles in their serving the word, their ministry of the word in this same passage. So it's probably not deacons, but these are certainly the forerunners of them. It's like the church slowly codified what it meant to be one of the servant leaders in the church that handled these responsibilities in the church. But the other thing that we see about this is, is not just that these guys who were raised up and, and, and elected were voted on by the church, congregational polity, if you want to get deep into your, your, your Baptist ecclesiology there. Um, they didn't just serve tables because we're going to immediately see that Stephen was preaching out in the street. This was just one aspect of their responsibility. They were chosen to, do the, to have these responsibilities of service because they were already men of God. We, we sometimes in, in Baptist churches say, well, let's put someone on a committee or call them as deacon or something else in order to get them involved in the church. Oh, that's awful. That 99.9% .9 of the time does not work. What we see here is the church saying, who's already involved? Who's already filled with the Spirit? Who's already working and doing? Let's just let's give them the title because they're already working. Give them a little direction. Kind of, okay, let's rein you in just a little bit. Let me focus you here. You go this direction, and boom, they're gone. That's what we see happening here. So the leadership has these, uh, this answer when they finally hear of it, when the murmurings, murmurings finally get all the way up to them. And verses 5 and 6 says, The proposal pleased the whole company. The church understood at this time the need for a division of, and, and priority of responsibilities among the church leadership. Not division in the church, but a division of the responsibilities. They understood. They said, wow, y'all are right, apostles. Y'all are right, pastors, that this, this will fix the problem for us. And so the church chooses seven men, and it says that they were full of the Spirit and wisdom. That's what the apostles told them to choose. Choose folks who are already doing God's work to continue to do God's work. We go through the list. I've already talked about Stephen and Philip. We don't know anything about the rest of them, although uh, we do have that little uh, uh, tag about Nicholas. First of all, the, the main thing we know about them is that they all had... Hellenistic names. They were probably all Hellenistic Jews. Let's briefly look at the problem, right? The Hellenistic Jews, the minority in the church, were being slighted. That's, that's, that is true. And they were murmuring about it. So they were complaining and gossiping and sniping and talking bad about the leadership because they weren't getting what they wanted or needed. So the, the, the church said, well, who better to make sure that the minority gets taken care of than people from the minority? Now, we might think, well, that's a horrible idea. They're going to they're gonna, uh, uh, cheat the majority. Well, no, they knew better because they were men who were full of the Spirit and wisdom. They knew that they would do this well, and all the men that they chose were of that minority group, best we can tell. That's giving leadership to the group 
that is murmuring. Now, chances are, if they were full of the Spirit and wisdom, they weren't part of the ones murmuring. Obviously, they weren't, uh, they certainly weren't the widows themselves. So we've got these Hellenistic names, these, this pulled from the, 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 the group that needed the ministry the most to oversee the ministry, and then, just as an aside for your edification, Nicholas, the last fella, is almost guaranteed to be a Gentile. Now, if you know your Bible really well, you know who we call the first Gentile convert. If you know it, shout his name out. Cornelius. I heard it somewhere. Cornelius, that's right. Uh, the, the, the centurion that Peter witnessed to. But actually, if we go back a little bit, we have the Ethiopian eunuch who was probably always Jewish, but he obviously wasn't of the Jewish race. He was Ethiopian. But even if we go back a little further to here, we see that uh, we have Nicholas, who was a proselyte, somebody who came to Judaism with a Hellenistic name. He was probably the first Gentile convert, albeit he did come through Judaism first, as did the Ethiopian eunuch. Cornelius was the first one to come straight from paganism to Christianity. That's just, that's just Bible trivia right there. Except that we see already how the church is diversifying and bringing in people that they would not have thought to bring in before this issue arose. So what I want you to see at this moment is God is using this issue, this murmuring. What Satan intended to use to split the church, God is reversing it and using it for his glory and to do great things in the church. And then we see that these seven men were, were dedicated to the task by the apostles. They stood before the apostles, the apostles prayed, and they laid hands on them. This is not ordination in the way that we do it today. That didn't develop for a few more hundred years after uh, the New Testament was, was written. Uh, but it was a setting aside of the people. Now, verse 7 is our summary verse. You know, Luke loves these things in Acts. And he tells us what's just generally what's going on. It says, The disciples, the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Disciples increased greatly. After Satan had tried to split the church and failed, disciples increased greatly. When did that happen, though? When did the church continue to grow? First, it continued to grow once the complaining and the murmuring was stopped. Once that stopped, the church began to grow. Once the apostles, the, the pastors, recognized the need for a new way of doing things. It was not shocking at all. As a matter of fact, Judaism has its own form of helping widows and the poor. They would hand out money once a week, and they would hand out food once a day. So they had done this. The church just kind of adopted what, the, what Judaism had already done. For years, hundreds, probably a couple of thousand years maybe, they had done it this way, but the, the, the apostles recognized, hold up, we've got to change the way we do things here. It's not just the, the synagogue is how they would have done it. The synagogue and the priests of the synagogue doing this now. We've got more people than we can deal with. We've got to change the way we do things in order to reach our community. 
and they recognized that need for the new way. So the church grew once the apostles recognized it. The church grew once the church followed the leading of the apostles, the pastors, and accepted the new way. Once the church said, you know what, we're pleased with this. This, you're right, this is something we need to do in order to reach our community. Once, fourthly, once the new leadership was fulfilling their God-led responsibilities, once the people who had been raised up to take this new ministry, to do this new thing in a new way, once they took their job seriously and began to do it the right way, once the leadership in the church was faithful, the church began to grow. And the church then reached deeper than they ever could have imagined. It increased greatly in number, verse 7 says, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Uh, one number I read said Jerusalem could have had 8,000 of these priests in the city. Uh, these priests had normal jobs all the other, uh, most of the time, but for two weeks out of the year, they were on duty. Basically what Zechariah, uh, John the Baptist's dad, did. Uh, regular job, on duty at a certain time. And a great number of them, so it could have been a couple of thousand of these priests from the synagogues are coming now to the faith. They're, they're affecting synagogue leadership. It's not just the general population. They are now reaching the leaders of, this, of, of Judaism because they took on what the devil was doing in the church. So how does this apply to us, Michael? I'm glad you asked. If we want to see FBC Sulphur reach deeper than imagined, reach people that we never thought we uh, could have reached, we need to first know that our worst attacks will always come from within the church. We'll be attacked from the outside. That's a given. That's what unbelievers will do to the believers. We will be attacked. The worst attacks will be those that come from within. Those are the ones that have to be stopped quickly and immediately. If we want FBC Sulphur to reach deeper than imagined, the murmuring and complaining has to stop from leadership down to lay people. All of us have to stop. We have to start taking issues directly to those who can solve them and quit sniping and gossiping behind people's backs. If we want to see FBC Sulphur reach deeper than imagined, and we just went through the passage, so if you're going to argue with me that I'm wrong on this, I would love to talk to you about it. We must adjust to the new realities of ministry. The church in Jerusalem had to adjust to how things were, not to how things, uh, how things used to be, or how they wished they were. This is what we have now. We need to adjust, adjust to that. If we want... FBC, I want to see FBC Sulphur reach deeper than imagined. Each leader must fulfill his or her responsibility with their priorities in place. That means that I have to focus on preaching and praying. You know, the joke is that all we do in the office is pray all day anyway. Um, and that I only work an hour a week. Uh, doesn't quite work that way. But I have one major responsibility as a pastor this is it. This is where the bulk of my time should go. It's not where it always goes, and we are blessed with a large staff, so we can split a lot of responsibilities. Uh, hospital visitation, sick 
visitation, sick calls, uh, uh, benevolence, um, all sorts of things now, because we have a staff that can do it, can be divided up wonderfully to take exactly what we see here, the responsibility of some day-to-day things off of the pastor so the pastor can focus on the Word of God. But we all must fulfill those responsibilities and prioritize what we are called to do, and that's ministerial staff and lay leadership in the church and non-leadership in the church. We all have responsibilities. See, folks, the gospel, verse 7, is why we are here, to spread the word of God. We're not here for ham slices, nor beard lengths, nor choir robes, nor carpet colors, nor filing cabinets, nor comfort, nor preferences. Those are not why the church exists. We exist to share the gospel And the danger from within is that the gospel gets lost in the confusion and tyranny of the unimportant and ridiculous. When we are fighting about stupid things that do not matter in the grand scheme of the kingdom, when we're having to put out little fires of rumor here and little fires of gossip there, complaints and murmurs around in these areas, we are not able to focus on the gospel the main thing that we have to do. So let's focus on the main thing. The gospel is what's important. Not the murmuring and complaining. Not the fights. So, the gospel. That's why I'm up here this morning. It's the hope that someone here that has never experienced salvation might hear the gospel. We see what the Bible says about the church, but we can't ignore the reason, and that is the gospel. The gospel that says God is holy and just and will judge sin. The gospel that says we are willfully sinful and fallen, destined for everlasting torment and judgment. Because of our sinfulness, God will not just judge sin, but those who sin, and that's everybody. But knowing that he would have to judge us, he also sent an opportunity to save us through Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God who took our place and our sin on the cross, dying for all people, rising three days later. That is our hope. That is our salvation. That is how we win against the attack of unbelievers from within or the attack of Satan Um, Rather, the attack from unbelievers without and the the attack from Satan within is through the assurance of our salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ given to us by his death on the cross and his resurrection. And then we repent of that sin, place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation by believing in him. Then we live for him. That's the gospel. That is why we exist as a church. That's it. This morning, if you don't have that salvation, we'd love for you to make that decision this morning, to follow Jesus and trust him as your Savior. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word that corrects and admonishes. Lord, your word that speaks hard truths, truths that we might not want to say or hear, but God, we know that you put your word together for us for a purpose and God this morning you clearly have a word for us 
God, may we as a church come against the enemy that would divide us from within. God, may we set aside those things that cause dissension, set aside gossip and murmuring and sniping and, uh, and, and, and dissension just for the sake of it, anger, jealousies, bitterness. God, may we see your Holy Spirit flood this place. May we be a church that sees salvations from, from the deepest, unexpected places in sulfur. Because you do a work in spite of what Satan's trying to do. And Lord, this morning, may someone here, someone listening, experience salvation because they heard the gospel today. They heard the need uh, for salvation because of their sinfulness and what Jesus Christ offers. And they want to respond to that. May you do a work in every heart this morning, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what's your obedience this morning in faith? Obedience in the faith is what it says about the priests that were coming to know Jesus. They were being obedient in the faith. What's your obedience in the faith this morning? Uh, is it to accept Christ? Is it maybe to be baptized, to follow in obedience? Maybe is it to give something to him this morning at the prayer rails? lead a life of holiness, recommit, return. Maybe you need to give up some bitterness, some gossip, some sniping, some murmuring. Maybe you need to pray for our church that we would not be attacked from within. Maybe you need to join First Baptist Church this morning. Come and say, I want to be a part of what God's doing here because I see it, I know it. 40 backpacks and 150 kids a week and more than that. Whatever you need to do, the altar is open for you. I'll be over here to my left. Tom will be over here to my right. You can come and pray with us. But whatever you do, make sure this morning you hear God as you do business with him. Let's stand and sing this morning.